0: everyone. Before we start this episode, just wanted to say that this is a special episode of Simple Beat because we are celebrating our first anniversary. We have been doing this for just a little bit over a year now, and we wanted to thank everyone who's been there all the way from the first episode on the Startup Chime. And also welcome anyone who maybe this is your first episode listening to the show. I wanted to also mention one thing that we're doing for our first anniversary. We are selling t-shirts. These are available for a couple more weeks and will be available to ship before the holidays. They are appropriately classic Mac themed. And can't usually do this with a t-shirt on a podcast. We're actually able to give you an audio preview of the shirt. And... You can have one of your very own if you go to simplebeep.com slash shirt. You'll actually be able to see it there. Head over to the order page. They are $20 American. And like I said, they will ship for the holidays. Thanks and enjoy the episode. Simple Beep, episode 26, Preserving Mac History with Stephen Hackett. Hello and welcome to Simple Beep, a podcast about the history of Apple and the Mac community. I'm Ed Cormany. And I'm Brian Satorius. And this week, we're joined by a special guest, someone who is well known in the area of Apple and Mac history, and someone who's been a long supporter of our show, all the way from the beginning, really, helping us get the word out about Simple Beep and getting some of our core audience in. And you may know him better as the co-founder of Relay FM, Stephen Hackett. Welcome to the show.
1: Hey guys, uh, thanks for having me. Like like we were saying, it's 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 a lot of fun to finally get to talk to you guys. Likewise, yeah, it's it's. I don't know if you guys do this. Um, maybe I'm the only one, but sometimes I sort of yell at podcasts when I'm listening to them. Like, no, you got that like <laughs> tiny detail wrong. Um, I've done that with you guys, so
0: it's nice to be here. Oh, that's a badge of honor. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we know that you know we try to put a lot of research into these shows and you know, really nail down a topic but we still like to do it as this discourse format so we always veer off and once you start getting off plan you realize oh no oh no how, how well do i really know this i think i I, and I was a bad podcast listener i didn't tell you but i think it was something you
1: i don't remember what it was now but you corrected it the next time and i was like yes like someone else actually sent the email and like me i was just a bum I think we have
0: uh, good listeners who are the ones that people always ask for, you know, don't send the tweet w- before the episode is over. Yes, <laughs> they're they're pretty good about that. So, we we really enjoy that.
1: Yeah, they'll they'll be correcting you and then you correct yourself like 9 seconds later like, "Oh, just bring that tweet back. That's that's fine." <laughs>
0: yeah. So, everyone listening will be looking forward to the errata for this show <laughs> as we <laughs> as we make stake, mistakes along the way. So, Stephen, we wanted to ask you about some of your experiences with the Mac and your forays into Apple history. And I know you've talked in other venues somewhat about your first experiences with the Mac, but maybe not everyone has heard those. So if you could tell us what were your first experiences using the Mac and about what time and what kind of hardware or software you were using then. Absolutely. So
1: I grew up in a, in a windows household. I remember very vividly my dad buying like an NEC laptop running like windows 3.1 for work groups, even though there was no one else with the computer. He worked at home. So I don't, I don't know who was in his work group, but, um, uh, and you know, we transitioned from that to, you know, windows 95, like the family computer. Right? I think it was a Packard bell, um, just a real, uh, piece of work. <laughs> um, and so yeah, I grew up grew up with Windows at home and um I so to kind of put my age because this is important. I'm 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 29 years old. I graduated high school in 2004. And so when I was in elementary school, there were some um there were some Macs around, but not um but not a lot of them. And, and in middle school, you know, there were some more. Our middle school had a lab full of iMac G3s. They were all brand new at the time. And I remember uh, very vividly, um, you know, going in there and using these machines that just look like uh, unlike anything else I'd ever seen. But you know, it's it's computer lab, right? You do it once a week or something. and You don't get a lot of time with it. It's all very structured.
0: Uh, I think we're a very similar age to you, off by maybe a year or so, and we had pretty similar experience. I think in our school, in elementary school, it was definitely dominated by Apple IIs. So there was an Apple. There was literally an Apple II in every room in elementary school. And then once we got up to upper elementary school, like fifth and sixth grade, they had an Apple II lab and a Mac lab. And those are like, two distinct places that you could go to do different activities. But by the time we got to middle school, seventh grade, the district was seeing the Mac as too expensive and was going, they had an aging Mac lab that was going to get phased out. And, uh, and then they had a windows lab and they were planning to go basically all windows. By the time we got to the high school, uh, there was our freshman year. <laughs> this was kind of a surreal thing. I don't know if we've told this story on the show before. Really surreal thing. Um, famous alum of our high school is uh, David Pogue, who wrote Max for Dummies, you know, longtime colonist for Macworld, uh, wrote for New York Times, is now at Yahoo. Oh, yeah. Wow. My mom nominated him for our Alumni Hall of Fame for the high school because she went to the same high school as I did. And he came, he gave a talk, like in, an assembly in the school. And then, uh, we got to basically like cut the second half of the day and tour around with him con- trying to convince our school administration that Macs were the way to go for the future. And I think they did eventually buy like an iMac lab, uh, sort of similar thing. Uh, but that was just th- thinking back on that. It's, uh, it's a pretty, pretty weird thing to have gone through. Yeah. That's super strange.
1: Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, yeah, I didn't really use the Mac in any meaningful way until high school where I joined the uh, high, pa- high school like newspaper staff and uh the high school newspaper was real big at my school uh at a bun- one of a bunch of awards before I was there, while I was there, after I left. Um and they had when I started uh mostly beige Macs, the, the best Mac that we had the first year I was there was a uh Power Mac G3 all-in-one, the, the molar Mac. oh yeah. Um, which I try to buy one from time to time and you, A, you can't find them and B when you do the shipping is like $900 <laughs> because they're, I think I, they're like pretty close to the Emac in weight. I think i are talking like
0: 40, 50 pounds, right?
1: Oh yeah. No, it's, it's a, like if you dropped it on a small child, it would be bad.
0: <laughs> Perfect for schools.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. For a, don't tip it over kids, like a big metal bracket, holding it down. Um, but uh, very quickly we moved uh, to iMac G3s. Now this was like 2001, 2002. So you know the, they were second hand; they had been somewhere else in the school. Um, but we had several uh, of various uh, generation. I think we had one DV, and the others were kind of you know five flavors and that, and that sort of thing. And um, I just fell in love with it. It was so great to be able to take an idea, whether it be an article or uh, you know, I did a lot of design and layout and and take this idea that you have and be able to make it. And then not only print it in the, um, like in the newspaper room on, you know, we had like this nice high DPI printer, but then to really see it in newsprint, we, we published every six weeks and to see it in newsprint, this thing that like, I thought of this and I made it on this computer. And now like a bunch of people are carrying it around in their backpacks. It was like blew my mind. And, um, and very quickly, you know, basically got my hands on a on a Mac through a through a job that they let me kind of carry around as my own laptop. And then uh, from there, it was just, uh, I just rode off into the sunset with it.
0: So these first Macs that you had in school, you said it was mostly original iMacs or those shortly thereafter, because there was a pretty quick revision cycle on the iMacs in the first couple of years. So how were those set up? Were they still running classic Mac OS 8 and 9?
1: Yeah, we we were running a, a mix of uh, of eight and nine. We were running, you know, old versions of Quark Express, old versions of Photoshop. Um either type of Quark Express, like if you like the dongle falls out of the computer, it doesn't work anymore. I mean it was old school.
0: Wait, on IMAX, did you have to have like adapters for your
1: Yeah, and, and it may be that those were gone. It may have just been those early beige machines had the adapters. I think I think we updated like Quark four or five without dongles on the IMAX. But um they were running the the classic Mac OS.
0: I think that many people forget the original meaning of dongle, which is you know, now we think of it as like one of those little like uh, video adapters that you use to connect your Mac to VGA or HDMI for a projector. But the original true dongle didn't actually connect to anything. I think sort of hence the name that's like dangle because they would just dangle off the side of the computer and not do anything. Um, except they were these hardware keys basically hardware drm that would need to be plugged into the machine for any given piece of software to work so like you said steven high-end software like quark i'm not sure if the adobe products ever used dongles but those sorts of things large scale production software
1: yeah it was uh, i mean <laughs> that stuff was so expensive so we, we we moved from the classic mac os to os 10 this would have been 10.2 um and uh it, you know, like the, the, the IT like person from the school, I think she had like two or three schools. I got to know her pretty well. She was, um, big influence in the way I think about technology, even until today. Um, she came and upgraded us to 10.2 and at, and at the, t- and at the same time put in a G4 tower. Um, one of the first ones as our, as our server running like old school expensive, you know, now it's like $9 on the app store, but then OSN server was expensive. And uh, and it got that running, and um, and then she left, and then I broke it all in, a, in an embarrassing story. So,
0: so what went wrong? Is this sort of a? I think Merlin Mann tells the story of when he first installed OS 10, and he's like, "Library, what's this? I don't need any of this," and just starts start putting things in the trash.
1: Yeah, it's it's almost that bad. So, uh, you know, print shops, uh, web agencies too, but you know, print shops have this this reputation, I think, or at least they used to, of like kind of being like uh, cesspools of piracy. And so we had all these fonts and all these computers, like who knows where they came from, right? Um, I mean, we had internet access and we were downloading fonts and as long as they, you know, worked when we exported a PDF, like, you know, who cares? Um, And uh, so I I was like, okay, I have all these fonts on this one system and I need them on all the other systems. And you got to remember, I had only ever really used mac os 9 uh i had seen os 10 and used it in passing i didn't know anything about it i was like oh well i'll just copy this font folder and put it on all these other machines and uh it'll be great and turns out that things like permissions exist (laughs) and if you and if you don't know the difference between the system library font folder and the user font folder things can go things can go bad and um so I don't remember the specific specifics, but basically I ended up replacing like the system font folder on a bunch of machine on like three or four machines. I mean, and, uh, you know, you go and, and, and try to boot them up and they're just like, well, no, I, you killed my system font. You know, <laughs> I can't do anything. Um, you know, now we got a lot of protection there, but then it was like, oh yeah, it's, oh, it wants the password. Cool. I'll just give it the password. And, uh, and so she had to come back and, uh, and address that. And, uh, she gave me, I mean, it was really great. I mean, I, I could have been in a lot of trouble and, and, and really she took the opportunity to teach me, you know, kind of the, you know, we have the, the user level and we have the system level in OS and 10 and they're separate. And this is kind of why they're separate and this is how they, they interact with each other. And, uh, it was really great. And, um, and she fixed it. And then the newspaper advisor told me not to do that sort of thing again. So I, I behaved the rest of the time.
2: <laughs> One of your other appearances where you talk about, This era of using early Macs was Mac Power Users, now on Relay FM, uh, episode 235. And two things that you mentioned uh, that kind of screamed classic Mac OS to me were, I think you said you had to like run across the hall to fix another department's Apple Talk networks. Oh, yeah. (laughs) It's like probably giving like PTSD to people who are listening to this show.
1: Yeah, we should we should be careful about mentioning those sort of words. <laughs>
2: yeah, exactly. And also uh the like everyone's muscle memory of holding down shift to disable extensions at boot when you're troubleshooting. Uh yeah, do you have any memories that you want to share from those?
1: Yeah, you know, I think I think a lot of high school nerds, which I am not gonna judge, but I'm gonna guess they're high school nerds listening to this. Um uh you kind of have like three groups of nerds in high school. At least in at my school we did. We had the band and then we had yearbook and we had newspaper and the yearbook, they actually, um, uh, you know, they had max as well. And uh, I remember, I don't remember the model name. Maybe you guys will know it. The, uh, the CRT display that the back was crystal clear, you know, it wasn't that like
2: came out with the cube.
1: Yeah. They didn't have a cube, but they had like the CRT, you know, schools, they just like stuff gets divvied up. Um, uh, gorgeous. I mean, to this day, like that display is one of my favorites. Anyways, they, they transitioned to OS ten after we did, maybe like a year after we did. And they had this little AppleTalk network set up to do some file sharing and whatnot. And, um, you know, they would just come in one day, and, like, turn it on, it just didn't work. So you have to go in there and, like, check the node settings and, like, oh, well, did you install anything new? And, you know, oh, yeah, it's all this thing. Well, I saw an extension that, you know, broke this other thing. And so much of those classic macOS troubleshooting days were, like, what did you change? Like, that's the first question. Like, what did you do because I'm going to blame... You know, I'm going to blame you. This thing is fragile, but like, what did you do? And uh, so, yeah, you know, I kind of became sort of their unofficial uh, IT guy, which uh, which was a lot of fun, too.
0: Yeah, that monitor was the Apple Studio display, the last iteration of that, it looks like, before they went to LCD displays and then renamed them the Cinema Display. There you go. So at that time when you were in school, I know that I, I think we saw ourselves as pretty big Apple fanboys even back to our school days and where you said you came to it a little bit later so as you were using these machines like in high school and getting productive work done on them and doing newspaper stuff and being your you know little bit of IT manager on the side unofficially how much did you know at that time about kind of the troubles that Apple was going through and Did you notice, did you really know that the iMac was this pivotal point in their company history? Um, did you know anything about the other drama that was going on there with CEO changes, Steve Jobs coming back, things like the Copeland project blowing up and Apple not having a new operating system? (laughs)
1: I really didn't, and and I didn't have internet access at home. Um, the only time I spent on the internet was in newspaper, and in newspaper we were we were working. And so I did, a, you know, I didn't know that they were the underdog. I didn't know that you know PCs vastly outnumbered them. As good as our IT uh, person was, you know, other people would come in and, and take care of stuff, and you know, you could kind of just get the feeling that they didn't like them for some reason. Oh, these weird little machines are not they're not real computers. Um, it really wasn't until until my freshman year of college where uh, all of a sudden I had. Uh, you know, much you know, moderately more free time, and uh, you know, high speed internet piped into my dorm room. I was like, oh, there's this whole universe of people who are interested in this, and I'm interested in it. And you know, what can I learn from these other people? And then, you know, I very quickly became acclimated to like the culture and the history, and um, it really was like that that first semester of college where I watched my or you know, kind of the the live blog, you know, kind of following along. Uh, of the news, you know, the day that they had a keynote. Um, it, uh, I remember very vividly being in the college newspaper room with my then editor uh, as news coming in about the Mac Mini. And we're just like refreshing Apple's website and it's down and it's struggling. It's like, oh my gosh, like I want to see this machine, uh, but it's, you know, <laughs> uh, this is crazy. Like it's this little box. And I was like truly interested in a new computer. And, and that that sort of time frame was really the pivot point for me from this is a useful tool to like, This is a lifestyle and a culture that I can really get behind.
2: And I think around that time, Apple was definitely dominant in the music player industry with the iPod, but it was before iPhones and and iOS in general. Uh, So I think there was even then still a perception that like Apple's the underdog and Microsoft slash the Windows is like the big behemoth, the David Goliath scenario. Did you feel like you ever had to be like defensive? Like I'm a Mac guy and Mac guys need to stick up for each other.
1: Yeah, definitely, definitely in college. I mean, I carried a, a power book to to class. I had a, a Newton that I used in class a good bit. Ooh, um, had a you know had had a couple different iPods throughout that time period. And yeah, I mean, sometimes you just run into people like, you know, what are you doing? Like, I was in the art school and then the journalism school. You know, I was in like the Mac safe haven in the college, right? Like, there's no, you know, it's not like I'm in I'm in the science lab. Um, yeah, I mean, I, you you get you just get comments sometimes from people and. Um I definitely played the part of like the defensive Apple fan for a long time. A lot of people would argue I still do, that's fine. But um you know like in class we're like, "Well, what's that thing? Like why are you using that?" and um or you know I have a professor like, "Oh, well, I need you to turn your thing in as a Word document." I'm like, "Cool. I've got Microsoft Word here." Like it's not <laughs> not a problem, you know. Um Yeah, yeah, I you know, I think I think especially at the time Apple had a lot to prove, right? Like they had to prove that the iMac wasn't a one hit wonder. And they had to prove that, you know, uh, or in the early days of the music business was going to be successful. And of course, you know, 2003, 2004, those things had been cemented, right? They had a bunch of good iMacs that had you know, several iPods, music store and everything. Um, but yeah, I think the Apple community just had this chip on its shoulder for a long time. And I think parts of it still do where it's like someone says something about Apple and you have to rush in and defend it. And, um, and, and not even like defend your own choice, but like defend the company's choice, which being in like the apple media now just really drives me crazy but um you know it's
0: it's something that I think people have done for a long time yeah we should all be allowed to have our own opinions
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah I mean I mean i you know if Apple does something goofy, then I want to call them on it because that's part of my job and uh, you know I think I think watching anything you you're interested in with you know roasting a glasses. Eventually you'll get hurt, so it, it makes sense to keep uh, keep an eye on things where where appropriate.
0: Absolutely. You said that you had limited or no internet internet access at home during those first few years that you were working with the Mac. Did you access any? Did you have access to any Mac publications like MacWorld, Mac User? Our favorite was MacAddict for a long time. Were those? Floating around in the departments that you were working in, or did you ever, you know, go to CompUSA or something and stroll over to the little magazine rack and pick up something like that? Oh yeah,
1: absolutely. I mean, they, they were definitely floating around, and you know, if I was somewhere, uh, you know, if I was at a bookstore, or something, you know, definitely pick up MacWorld or some something else and flip through it, um, and you know, and just be be lusting after new machines. You know, like the, oh, you know, they've got new pictures of this iMac G4, which just looks incredible, or. They've got this like great review of the cube, and like this machine just seems like unlike anything I've ever seen, and uh, it's still gorgeous. I have one that sits next to my desk at home. It's like, it, like I want this, and um and those magazines did a really good job at that, and um you know with the product photography and the reviews and everything, and and um uh, you know like reading people who now I get to work with, like like read a review by Jason Snell, and like now we have podcasts together, which is crazy yeah, absolutely. And I think that before the internet and even the, in those early internet days for me, like that was the only time I got some of that culture because there wasn't, uh, there was a Mac user group in Memphis at the time, but, um, I went like one time as much like old dudes trading Apple II software. Like it was, cr- it was like, what year is this? What have I stepped into? Um, uh, and so there really wasn't like a, a place to go. There wasn't a common, um, like water cooler for mac nerds at the time except those magazines really
0: maybe now we can talk a little bit about your own macs that you've had over the years so i think you mentioned what your first personal mac was was a uh, powerbook g4 so what os would have come loaded on that and this is sort of getting into that classic to os 10 transition
1: yeah it um it came uh, it was you know the the titanium would dual boot Uh, which was cool. That ended, I think, with the titanium. I don't think the aluminums did that. Um, but mine, mine, I had the fancy one, so I had like the one gigahertz. It was, um, I mean, it was, it was really awesome. And I, I believe that it shipped with uh, ten point two, like an early build of ten point two. Um, I remember very distinctly, like upgrading. You know, the Apple Store used to have these release parties, and so like you go to like the Panther release party, and like. They give you like dog tags with OS X's logo on them and you get like a raffle off an eyesight or whatever. And then they had, you know, the theater in the store at the time and they'd show you all the cool stuff. And so I remember on that machine going from like 10.2 to 10.3 and then ultimately 10.4 before I got rid of it. Um, and then, you know, booting into OS 9 less and less and 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 doing, um, using classic less and less. I mean, you know, the for a long time, Cork Express didn't have an OS Ten app. Like it, they were just in... Ah, uh, the classic Mac OS, and so you had to run classic mode to run Quark, which is like this whole thing that like people like th- thinking back on that. It was a genius move, but sort of insane at the same time. Like that that they had to do that, but um, but you know those early versions of OS ten just the support wasn't there on day one, so you had to kind of live in both worlds for a long time.
2: Yeah, so it sounds like you used classic when it was necessary, right? Like for work things, like Quark was there anything just kind of like having come into the Mac at those OS 8 OS 9 iMacs was there anything just about the experience or like fun or games that you missed as well
1: no i mean i was i was in OS 10 as much as i could be um just because the the features were nicer and i just um you know i came in at the very tail of the classic mac os and um and so for me at the time it didn't a connection that so many people have to it I didn't have I have it now but um it wasn't for me it was like oh gosh like, I gotta go use this thing and it's crazy and there's like a menu called special like why is it called special whoever n- named it that like email us so we can explain it to other people <laughs> um yeah so for me OS 9 was a utility it was never something that I you know really wanted to use I wanted to be in OS 10 all the time because OS 10 was great and um it was slow at times but you know Coming from like Windows ninety eight and two thousand, like OS ten was just a, a miracle to me, and uh, that's where I wanted to spend my time.
0: Uh, one other question about the OS ten transition. So, one of the other things that you did is that you worked for several years as a Mac genius at an Apple store. And at the time that you were doing this, I think you said you started around two thousand six. Is that about right?
1: Yeah, it's two thousand six to two thousand eight ish. So yeah, it's pretty close.
0: So, when you were at the Genius Bar, did you ever see Classic Macs coming in, um, ones that were single booting into the OS Nine? Um, and was that part of the training? Because thinking about the time frame, like Classic, at least under OS Ten as emulation was current up through Leopard, which was two thousand seven. So, I would imagine that a lot of people you know, there was this whole painful transition where Apple said even from this. Uh, even from this point of not having the high ground, not being able to dictate everything, or we're burning everything to the ground. All that old stuff is going to be in the old world, the classic world, and everything in the future is going to be OS X. Um Did you have people who were clinging to their classic Macs?
1: We had a few. Uh, I remember distinctly this guy who would bring in his clamshell iBook and would just need help with something. And it was it was running OS 9. And uh, like I can't... Uh, if I remember correctly, and I, I may be wrong, but I believe that the, the rule of thumb was that we could support classic, but not the classic, like not booting into the OS. And so if you had a problem with classic running an OS 10, like we could get classic itself fixed, right? So like we could reinstall, you had to do drivers. I mean, uh, the details are fuzzy now, but you, you basically had to give OS 10 a copy of OS 9 to use, and then it had to do some stuff to it. And we could do that. Like we could get the container working, but anything inside the container You know, if you're having trouble with an app running in a classic like that, basically, like, you know, we could maybe give it a shot, but we weren't required to, and we definitely weren't trained on fixing anything in OS 9. It was just, hey, get the structure around it working, and then you're kind of on your own.
0: Literally in a separate box all to itself.
1: Yeah, literally you're just over there in a crate in the corner, and
0: (laughs) and Apple has forgotten about you. And that's funny, because if you brought in hardware, of that vintage, like the clamshell iBook, And you need to run an OS 9 application on it. The correct answer is to boot directly into OS 9. Because if you install OS 10 and try to do classic, it's not going to have the resources to handle that effectively. Exactly. That's an interesting direction that they took on it. But it makes sense with that overall strategy of making the transition as abrupt as possible. Uh, And of course, they knew that if it was too abrupt, it would be. Their end.
1: Right. I mean, you know, you, you compare and contrast it to PowerPC and Intel, which of course, you know, way less impact, right? But uh that was relatively quick, really. I mean, um you know, Rosetta only stuck around for a couple of years where uh, Classic was there a long time and you know they they shipped they the cutoff of machines booting into OS nine, I think ended sooner than what a lot of people would have liked. But um you know the classic environment lasted a you know like you said till two thousand seven or so so that's a that's a pretty long run from when you know the last bits got pushed to to o s nine um but again they i mean how do you replace your o s that you've had for twenty years i mean that's like they did it really well um there's there's three episodes of the debug podcast um I'm trying to remember who was on it, but talking about carbon and that whole like the bridge and everything they had to do um it's really it's fascinating, and it's it was so genius in the way that they did it, where hey, you know, if you opt into carbon, like you get goodies on both sides, and uh if you go full cocoa, then you get lots of great stuff um and and you know Apple could build all of that, and they just had to wait and they had to wait for big you know Microsoft Adobe quark, all these big companies to to get on board with it and from their perspective, you know if you're Microsoft or if you're Adobe. You're like, well, you know, Apple has kind of been circling the drain for a while. Like, they have this one interesting iMac, but they all run the classic Mac OS. And uh, maybe, maybe we all just wait and see if OS 10 sticks, or see if Apple. Sticks. Like, what if OS 10 doesn't go where we think it is, and we put all these resources into it, and then Apple goes away anyways? So I think Apple's financial situation hurt the transition to OS 10 because they it was they were struggling to get buy-in from third parties, which again is fair, but you know definitely didn't work in their favor.
0: And the ask for those third parties was so much bigger than it is when we hear things like now where at WWDC they make some sort of framework change and they go, oh, hey, developers, you're going to need to like spend an afternoon and then recompile your app and redeploy it to the App Store and it'll all take a week. But that wasn't the method of distributing software at that time. You know, If Microsoft wants to update Office for the new platform, well, even if it only took their team internally a week, then how do you get that to any of your customers? You're looking at, you know, full run of CD production, manuals, actual shipping, physical media across the world. It's just it's just not as simple as it is today.
1: And how do you tell your user, hey, user, there's this new version of the software you use sitting at CompUSA down the street. Like, I don't envy anyone who had the job of like, Support you know software updates and uh, that marketing before before the world that we live in now. I mean even thinking before the app store things like Sparkle right like I, oh I open you know Cyberduck and Cyberduck has an update and it's Sparkle and oh I have a new version like even that seems so revolutionary compared to oh uh, well, I got to go get a CD and like oh I'm one version behind because I didn't know there was an intermediate version so I have to like buy the full installer or you know, I mean just that stuff. I do not miss. I think the simplification of updates for the most parts, uh, been a good thing for the platform.
2: So continuing to talk about the classic Mac, it seems like you've more recently gone back and like got some old machines or getting uh, old software from places like the Macintosh garden probably. And so we want to probe into that from the, uh, the perspective of like going back and with all the knowledge of OS 10 today, going back and rediscovering the classic Mac, uh, from that perspective.
1: Yeah. So I do have a growing collection. Um, I was actually just looking at that text document today in preparation. I'll, uh, I'll put that up where we can share it. But, um, yeah, for me, the collection that I have, I mean, a lot of them are from the era that I am. So I have a Logi threes, Logi fours and I have some, some older stuff too. Um, some original Macs and some Apple twos.
0: I don't have a lot of like
1: Performa XXX model. you know, like, who, who cares?
0: <laughs> Nobody wanted them at the time either. <laughs> My grandpa had, had his first Mac was a uh, Performa because we suggested he get a Mac and it was the one that you know it priced out appropriately for what we thought he needed and it was like the most lemon Mac that we've ever had the the monitor like something got like loose in the CRT of the monitor immediately after it went out of warranty and you know it's a CRT monitor you can't go and open that thing up but just periodically the red channel of the monitor would drop out completely and everything would go green and you would just have to literally hit the side of the monitor <laughs> to try to get it going. So yeah, performance were, they were definitely in that dark period before, uh, before the iMac and before you came to it, Stephen. Yeah. So, uh, you know, for me,
1: it's the collection is more about the hardware. Like I do, um, there's a couple of the G3s that will boot, you know, OS, uh, OS eight and higher, um, I do boot into those and I do, I do, especially if I'm writing a, a like a historical, uh, historical piece, uh, I go back and I, I use it and I, um, cause I want to see what's most interesting to me of, of, of Apple history is the way things evolve. And so, you know, I've got, I'm just looking at this list. I've got a, uh, a bunch of iBooks like from G3, G3s and G4s and, and this idea of a like consumer plastic notebook changed radically over the you know, six years or so that they were sold. And for me, it's interesting to to examine the decisions that went into that and to see, okay, well, the clamshell was just crazy and the design was really dated pretty quickly, honestly. And so they went to something more streamlined in 2000, 2001, and then they just um, refined that over time. They went from this translucent look to this opaque look where solid white plastic and they did this and they did that and um, that's really interesting to me from the hardware perspective, honestly, probably more than the software. Um, I think it's just because maybe my history is a genius and that I like taking things apart and, and the hardware is really interesting to me. Um, but it's definitely true in the software side as well. You go from, you know, the public beta to 10.0, 10.1, 102, 2, lots of changes. And then we get a 10.4. Uh, 10.4 is a big release, a lot of important stuff, but You know, then ten five and ten six, and it slows down. And now we're on this annual release cycle, which is really aggressive, in my opinion. But the the releases, the the delta between them is very small. Um, And so that timeline, that evolution, is pretty pretty fascinating.
0: Like you said, the we haven't had any of those big inflection points since I think since Rosetta went away with Lion. That was one line in the sand where I know that that kept a lot of people on Snow Leopard because they needed some Rosetta app. And I know that uh, for my family and for some of my documents too, we had tons and tons and tons of Clarisworks and Apple, Apple Appleworks documents. And they're just, they were dead in the water they were not going to go anywhere and it's like okay how do we find and convert three thousand apple works documents to pdf and like oh gosh <laughs> yeah starting writing apple scripts to get this done you have to sit there and babysit it because it's going to screw up and it's all going through like it didn't even use the basic scripting functions it was using like interface scripting to go through the print dialogue box <laughs> and it's just like complete mess and that's like the you know that's the biggest transition that i think we've had to make recently and hopefully with it being more gradual in the future then we won't have any of those huge pain points
1: yeah you say that and they're going to do arm max next year Oh, Everyone's god sad again
0: <laughs> rosetta 2.0 here it comes
1: I mean, it's about time they've done a transition every 10 years really um even in the classic mac os you know they they changed file systems they they went uh the changed the family of uh, processors. Of course, so like power the power PC the two that we just, yeah. yeah. And then what we just talked about. So it's, it's been 10 years since Intel, which is, uh, makes me feel really old, but, um, you know, so it's time, it's time for something for Apple just to blow something up for, you know, in the Mac line. So we'll see if that, if that time period, uh, stays, stays accurate.
0: Yeah. So you mentioned some of the older hardware that you had. Um, and I presume some of it, maybe not all of it still runs. And, so, what was the process of that was sort of process of discovery? When you buy something, you've got this old hardware that's new to you, and you get it up and running, and you're basically staring at an operating system that you've maybe never even seen before or only hardly seen at all. What was what's that been like?
1: The, the collection started out as I wanted to, um, I wanted to have the machines that I have owned myself. So like one of the first ones that I bought was, uh, I bought a titanium PowerBook G4 because that was one of the, um, again, kind of first Macs that I had. Um, I always had this love affair with the iMac G4. I never owned one, but used a bunch of them and it's like, okay, that, that machine means something to me. And so I would like to, um, you know, I would like to own, own uh, uh, an example of that. But yeah, if, if I, you know, if I, very rarely will I buy something that's not um, particularly planned. I mean, I sort of have this wish list in the back of my mind of like, it'd be really cool to own X, Y, or Z. And every once in a while I'll just, you know, peruse and, and see what's available, either eBay or locally on Craigslist or whatever.
0: That day that the 20th anniversary Macintosh walks across your <laughs> front lawn. Dude. Yeah.
1: yeah. Um, Mike Hurley, my, my business partner, at Relay, keeps telling me that I should buy one for myself for my 30th birthday. I'm like, i'm not sure you're aware of how much how much money that is like i can't just go drop uh you know i can't just go drop that kind of money on a on a machine that would be like super cool to have on my desk
0: but you know i'm not i'm not gonna be using it i just turned 30 and uh i bought myself a 4k iMac that's there you go coming shortly <laughs> so um that feels much more like a, a good birthday present yeah that's that's
1: probably a lot better of a call than um than buying a buying a Tam. Um, but yeah, you know, I, I do. I do generally things in my collection work, um, or at least you know have worked. Uh, last time I had them out. I mean, not everything is an is an active user, even in, in, you know, sort of where I can get to it easily. Um, and and again, I sort of have these reference machines, like my clamshell iBook and my blue and white G three tower, are sort of my I need to run random old OS, and I can install it onto that system because they have really broad support bases. Um, you know, I, I could, if I need to run 10.2, I have a bunch of machines that can do that. And, you know, so I might get a G4 cause it'd be a little bit better than G3, but most of the time, you know, these things I have some on display, I have some sort of in storage of the house. And, um, it's, it's just kind of knowing that I have them and knowing that, um, that they're around, uh, as silly as that sounds. I think that's, that's why I keep picking them up.
0: Yeah. And it's cool that you have a couple in the collection. They're still almost workhorses for you. Get access to whatever you need for a given purpose.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, I, I definitely have some that don't work. Uh, my Macintosh Color Classic, for instance, uh, the logic board looks like um, it's just been being eaten away by corrosion. I've done what I've can to slow it. But, you know, you get to a point where, like, I, I know if I put power to that thing, like it's just, it's just never going never gonna to start up. So I don't, that one doesn't get power uh, plugged into it because that would just end really poorly, I think.
2: It sounds like uh, when you do boot, into the ones that work it's it's for like OS reference but are there any apps from that era what, they weren't even called apps back then they were applications the full name uh, is there any software aside from the OS from the classic era that you ever find yourself going back to use
1: yeah uh, appleworks is a is not as much anymore but it used to be a pretty big one uh, doing you know doing consulting and that sort of thing, where it's like, oh, I have this, you know, this old document that I can't open. I like, eh. It's like, well, you haven't opened an Apple Works document in a long time. So, you know, apparently you just now need it again. Um, and so there's sort of that utility of it, like, Hey, I need to save this document out of something else, or, you know, just copy and, and paste the do- the contents into a, a text document. Um, and there are, there are some games now, you know, some of those classic, Education type games of you know uh, number munchers and super munchers. Uh I don't think Oregon Trail is particularly uh, educational, but of course that's a cult cult classic. Um, Kids, if you go to Oregon,
0: you're you're going to die. I know that the way that we played it, it was very not educational. (laughs) It was
2: a third person shooter, (laughs) (laughs) just for Buffalo.
0: And so yeah, so it's you know it is
1: more for that reference of um, you know I wrote this thing about Sherlock. I don't know a year or two ago, and I was like, well I need to go. Like, not only do I need screenshots, which usually I don't do myself if I can find them, uh, but I need to go, like, check it out. And, you know, that especially stuff tied to services doesn't work anymore, right? Like, the, the backend for Sherlock's been gone for who knows how long. But just kind of getting into it, um, help documentation is a big thing. You know, not all classic, uh, not even, even all current Mac programs have decent help, but the ones who did, that's all still intact on the disk. And so if I have... You know, ClarisWorks 4 installed and for some reason I need to know something, that those help documents come in really handy when you're like, oh, like what what was the system requirement? What could this particular feature do? Uh, that stuff can be handy, so it's it's nice to have that around.
0: Yeah, and also a lot of that can be is another collection to be made on the side because so much of that was not put into On disk help, like I'm looking at my shelf here, and I you just mentioned ClarisWorks four, and I can see my ClarisWorks four manual. There's two of them that came with it in the box, and it's about an inch and a half thick total. And none of that, none of that was part of the software. And you're not going to get that by going and booting into uh, Classic OS and trying to try try to find those help documents. It's either you've got the physical copy, or you're you don't have the manual. (laughs)
1: Right, and that's that's kind of the rub with with anti collecting of like how do we preserve software, how do we preserve documentation, and documentation is even a little bit easier that you can scan it um you know you can if you have your hands on it, you can make digital copies of it but in in fifteen or twenty years, if someone needs to boot up system seven and do something, that's going to get increasingly difficult, not only because it is tied to hardware in a way but the software is kind of locked away in the past and We've talked about that on Connected. Federico Vatici has this idea of, of archiving uh, iOS apps that go away. Like, what if you need to get a, a look at at Tweety Two? Well, a it probably won't run on iOS nine. Again, that, that problem exists in the iOS world as well. But like, how do we preserve this this software work that is increasingly important in our age of of Macs lasting longer than than, than ever? I mean, I mean, current Macs are built so well; it's just unbelievable. And there's so many of them, right? Like no one in 15 years is going to want to collect a 13 inch random MacBook Pro. Like pe- maybe people like me, but like you know, like that's not going to be like a, a rare thing. But the software on that disk is rare, or, or could become rare. And and that's something like I don't have an answer to. I don't know how to how to fix that problem. But it's something I think about on these systems. So if, if I buy a system and and it boots, um, I leave the disk intact like i don't i don't go in and, and except for my reference tower the blue and white i don't i don't blow away a hard drive on a machine that i buy i i generally leave it intact um for that reason not that i've done anything with this right it's just like in my own head of like i'm preserving glare's works like well you're not really because it's in your attic on a old beige mac but um that's like a, a problem i think and, and one that i i really don't know how to solve
0: yeah, there's also been people in a slightly different space working on that for video game preservation. Because it's like, th- these are cult- important cultural works. They're they're works of art to some extent. Even if they're not, they're just important technological artifacts. And yeah, we can do all kinds of things in emulation, but a lot of that stuff took a long time. I mean, I think it, there were basic Super Nintendo emulators. I'm, I'm, in addition to being an Apple fanboy and Nintendo fanboy, pretty far back. Um, And, you know, I I still have a working Super Nintendo and I'm pretty proud of that and play it fairly frequently. And I had a small collection as a kid. And once I had an actual paying job, uh, it started filling in some of the gaps of those old games. But one of the things with that was, um, I think, the Super FX chip that was part of Star Fox. uh, When that came out, it was hardware that was built into the actual game cartridge and basically without being able to emulate that on top it wouldn't run and it was it, nobody knew how it worked and basically the only way that you could do it is to get a copy of the game destroy it by opening up the chip itself and trying to you know like read the the path of switches off of the off of the actual integrated circuit and people spent like years and years and years on this so this archival process is really hard if we don't have Actual vintage hardware that can can do these things for us.
1: Yeah, exactly. It's you know it's it's that interplay soft you know software is like like you said it's in some in some instances very actually embedded in hardware and um, if that hardware fails or goes away then that software is sort of just along for the ride into the abyss and, and it's a shame and you know emulation can get you part of the way there um, but it is sort of this like interesting interesting idea of, of software being in in a way very uh, not permanent. You know, hardware like you build a, a Macintosh color classic in the factory twenty years ago, like and now it's sitting at my house. Like it's still a thing. All the all the atoms are still there, right? The plastic, the metal, everything is still there. But the software, the, the person hours that went into it to to make it run, to make that Happy Mac show up, um, that's fading and and, and fading in a hurry if you pay attention to it it's getting harder and harder to find that stuff
0: yeah so you said you've been trying to preserve this stuff and sometimes you'll buy a Mac that comes to you with you know a not wiped hard drive um, maybe through those sort of like little treasure hunts or just uh, through finding things and then sourcing them off the internet as we can do to some extent now are there any favorite apps that you have that you discovered like well well after the fact that um, that run only in the classic environment.
1: Not particularly. I think again that goes back to my sort of I was in the OS X camp because that's all I ever really knew at the time. And so, um, I mean, there's definitely some some stuff um, around around the Newton, some of the the Newton software that runs in classic Mac. That I bought a Newton in college, and that's when I discovered all that stuff. Um, but but again, it's more of a utility or a reference for me, not not a. Um, not a true like passionate hobby to to run the classic Mac OS, which I know makes some people sad, including you guys. <laughs>
0: <laughs> no, it really doesn't. I mean, we we dive in there through emulation, or Brian has a uh, dual USB iBook G3. Yeah. Does the keyboard smell bad? Because uh, I bet it does. A lot of those did. You know
2: it? I've never like recognized that, but yes, it does. <laughs> I've never actually thought about like this is a smell that only happens when this. <laughs> The lid is open, but it's true.
0: Did it just like, was it porous and it just got like years of finger goo in there? So those uh, iBook G3s,
1: not the clamshell and not the G4, there was a weird intermediate where it's a G3, but look like in, a, in that square white case. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, it's some combination of the adhesive used on the bottom of the keyboard. To, there's a label on the back of the keyboard. Um that adhesive, when it starts to break down, and the theory is when it, it does interact with bits of human, um, <laughs> it smells like bo. And I have one of those machines. Um, I've got a, uh, uh, it's not on the list, but some some iBook G3, and it is, um, it's pretty bad. It that's one that lives in the attic because it just it, you open it up and it just smells like uh,
0: like dirty gym socks. Really, I think that's a pretty. You're right. You're you're totally right. Apple does lots of quality control, but I guess they couldn't foresee that one. <laughs> yeah, it was one of those
1: things too. Like, how do you even test for that? Like, I wonder if this keyboard's going to get stinky. Like, I mean, it, it didn't cross anyone's
2: mind, I'm sure. You mentioned about uh, this discussion about preservation. Uh, I wouldn't sell yourself short there because the work you've done at your website, 512 Pixels and formerly Fork Bomber, I think you have some good almost columns there that do like put a narrative to a lot of this stuff. You've got your old Mac of the month where you and uh, other writers will contribute little essays about certain Mac models. And uh, another thing I like that you do is you kind of dredge through the Apple knowledge base and you have like your K base article of the month or the week. And uh, so like, that's, I think that's, that's good work. And hopefully at least the internet archive is picking all of that up, you know, for whoever and far off into the future.
1: I hope so. Yeah. The, um, I should resurrect the Old Mac of the month. That has been a long time since I've published one of those. But um yeah, because you know, other people are interested in this too. And um I, I do think like one of the proudest thing, I mean, five twelve pixels is seven years old now, just nuts. Um one of my f- things I'm most proud of wrote this thing about the history of the Aqua user interface, and this was before Yosemite was announced. So it was like, can I draw a line from the beginning of OS ten uh, and the beginning of the you know the the aqua interface? And if I draw a line from then to now, can I guess where Yosemite will be? And that was a lot of fun to do that. But it was especially fun because I got to deep dive in like how Aqua has changed and evolved. And what's really interesting is you put that next to like the hardware at the time. And as the hardware, you know, IMAX and iBook G3s were very fanciful, right? Like, I mean, if you call a computer Dalmatian or Flower Power, like you've gone down a road that's really interesting. Uh, I don't own either one of those and I don't... Not good looking. But um uh but as the hardware matured in look, the OS did too. You know, the early versions of Aqua, you know, there's the quote of the buttons look so good you could lick Um uh, my friends have a company called Lickability that's named after that quote. Uh it it grew mature and subdued at the same time. And so being able to like pull all that out and finding screenshots, like the hero screenshots of Apple's marketing for each version of OS ten was harder than you would imagine it would be and um one of those actually got help from somebody a reader uh had it um and actually I swapped it out later for for one that I had been using and so now like if someone wants to look for like the history of aqua like there's a place for that and 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 there wasn't before and so it is fun to create that sort of content it doesn't do the best page views in the world but i don't care like i want it to exist because i'm interested in it and other people are too and it, so it is, it is fun to get to to document little pieces of it here and there i could do a lot more i could go older but it's it's what I can do in in, in my limited capacity as a sort of a self proclaimed historian.
2: Well, I, I can tell you that we definitely appreciate it. At least the two of us. Like uh, there are a couple of your articles that we have bookmarked. Like you sent us your recent one about mice uh, that, that we might borrow from or use as inspiration. Another one about your history of the control strip is something we're we're kicking around.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's uh, the mice one is fun actually. Um, actually, just yesterday. I got to a point with the Mac collection. I was like, I need to collect things that are smaller for a little while. Cause we're just out of space. And so I have this mission to like every mouse that Apple's ever made. And just yesterday, eBay safe search came up with a strawberry colored puck mouse, you know, um, which like those mice are terrible, but <laughs> they had each of the five flavors had its own mouse and accompanying keyboard color, which I had forgotten about until I wrote, I think I wrote something about the iMac G3 and I stumbled across this image. and I was like, I totally forgot they they did this. I mean, it totally just escaped my mind to history that that you know you bought a great iMac, it came with a great mouse, um, and so a strawberry mouse finally popped up on eBay yesterday or the day before. So I, that's in route to my house. But um, <laughs> <laughs> nice. but you know again like on that micro level, like how has the mouse changed? Like you and 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 that's relevant today because just recently you know Magic Mouse two with its hilariously placed charging port.
0: Everyone laughed at that, but I have a Logitech travel mouse that plugs in the exact same place. I'm like, Yep, been there.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, it's better than the Logitech mouse that like sits in a cradle. It's like, why can't I just plug it in and, and you know, anyways, um and so even today as we're recording this, that's relevant news because the the mouse and the keyboard are still around. You know, this next station that my display sits on in my office, like there's nothing in this in this next station that is relevant anymore. But the ideas in this box of a the compact well-designed machine running a Unix-based operating system that's relevant. And, uh, because it, 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 in many ways, this machine historically is very important because it is the foundation of what we use today. And that's really what gets me excited about adding something to the collection of, is it important to me as a user? And I've, I've bought all those. And is it, is it interesting, like from a historical perspective, like, did it bring something to the table that was new that stuck around? So, the original iMac, that that blue and white three tower, this next station, um, they were turning points in hardware, and then, of course, software, and and those milestones, I guess, are those like those 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 posts uh, that you know, like uh, these are the the point in time where something something changed, right? You know, Steve Jobs or somebody gets on stage that this is a revolution for X, Y, and Z. That's what interests me now as a collector and as, as a as someone interested in the history of it is. Is those turning points? Because again, like Aqua, if you can, if you line up all those history points and you draw a line, you can guess where we're going, and um, and then you can sound smart about it. If you like, oh yeah, I think they're going to do this, right? Like, I talked years before they did of like they're going to they're going to solder RAM and storage on MacBook Pros. Like, it, 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 there's old articles. And it was before I was podcasting, and and sure enough, like that's what they've done. Because again, like you draw the line of like, well, these are getting harder to open. And there's like this weird MacBook Air that is this crazy machine and maybe not going to be a success, but it's really important in a lot of ways. And now you look at the MacBook, the MacBook fits cleanly into that peg as well. Like this machine is a pointer of where we're going.
0: And all the new iMacs that just came out and iFixit gets their hands on them, gives them one out of 10 repairability score.
1: Yeah. Which kills me. like As a hardware guy, it kills me. Like Even if you know what you're doing, that's a difficult machine to work on.
0: Well, and like you said, looking to the future, you know who's going to want to collect all of these? Well, nobody, but they're going to want to have some representative pieces from these different eras of Apple going forward. And then you're going to have a 2015 iMac and one little thing goes wrong with it, like a fan dies inside or something. And then you're going to have to open up this extremely fragile... Completely irreplaceable hardware just to get at this one little tiny thing to try to make it keep doing what it's supposed to be doing, and that you know that could really drive up the rarity of these kinds of things, not in terms of like a collector or value way but just the fact that we may lose them
1: yeah absolutely that's 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 a that's a good point and I think an important one um, you know if you have a mac two f x which like was a killer machine at the time. And they're still crazy expensive. Actually, it just looked like a month ago. Um, I don't know if people are smoking that own Mac 2 FXs. But um, <laughs> if a fan dies in that thing, like you put another fan in. Right? Like it's not difficult. There's obviously parts in there that are much harder to get your hands on. But there is this sort of um, modularity that Apple had for a long time. The original Mac was an appliance. Um, they went away from that when Steve Jobs was gone. He comes back. And for the most part, with the towers being the exception... Apple returned to a form of saying, you know, computers are appliances. Um, at least at least consumer computers are appliances. And even now, the, the current Mac Pro, you can open up and fiddle with, sort of. But an iMac, you can't. And, and a, a notebook, you can't because it's all sealed in and one thing. And that comes with trade-offs. Like, they're making really good products now. Like, my current-gen 15-inch MacBook Pro is, like, the best computer I've ever owned. Like, it just runs. I, I abuse it. I push it to its limit. And it just it just keeps on running. Again, it it's rock solid. It's a great computer, but is it going to be a great computer in ten years? Uh, probably not. And that that's a that's a shift that has taken place over the last couple of decades.
0: And that's how I feel about like my MacBook Pro that I'm recording this on, which is six years old and pretty long in the tooth, and you know it's going to get uh, swapped out for the iMac in short time, and then. The question is what what's going to happen to it? It's probably not going to get booted up, um, but to make sure that the you know the battery doesn't corrode itself to death or something.
1: Right, exactly. It, it's it's a, it's a struggle. I mean, it's it's some of that I struggle with of of my current stuff. Like, what do I keep? Like, I don't keep any old iPhones. I'm like everyone else. Like, I buy a phone every year and I like bankroll my new phone with the old one. Um, but like, I have this thought in the back of my head like hey in in 10 years are you gonna want are you gonna want an iphone 5 like um i'm doing it now i've started i've dipped my toe in the water of ipod collecting which is a whole world of hurt you got that u2 one yet no i was looking at them uh i mean they're so they're so bad (laughs) (laughs) uh but you know it's like am i going to regret this as a collector am i going to regret doing this and the reality is like i'd rather bankroll and have a new phone today and because Ultimately, anyone who's a collector is also impulsive. I was like, well, I'll just do that and I'll deal with it later. Um, Like the most American thing I could say as a human being. But uh, it is what it is, I guess.
0: Yeah, you (laughs) you were saying that you're trying to make the collection a little bit more practical in terms of size considerations. Have you ever collected any of the other ephemera that go around Apple? I know that for a while, I think these are mostly still in a closet at my parents' house. I was collecting Apple posters for a few years
1: yeah, yeah. I I've got some think different posters. Um they were given to me and I had an agreement with the guy that I was going to do a certain thing with them that I haven't done. So I need to I need to honor my agreement. Uh it's gonna be we're gonna use it as a fundraiser for something, and oh, cool. I, they're sitting in my closet. Um I mean I've got some stuff. I have a QuickTime Live sweatshirt, which someone bought me as a joke. I have been working on a QuickTime conference outline. You cannot find anything about this thing, but Apple used to have this QuickTime conference. Like three years, I think, and Phil Schiller spoke at it, and it was a whole thing.
0: Well, yeah, I mean, that was the, that was right in the heart of the time when we were following all of the Apple news, and it, that was the first I had ever heard of it. I, WWDC wasn't a big event at that point because, um, you know, just the way that products were being announced, there were still the Macworld Expos. Usually twice a year, and that was the kind of thing that made big news. And everyone was looking forward to keynotes, even even before there was such a thing as a live blog to follow along with. People are trying to get same day news as much as possible. But QuickTime conference just off the radar. What a crazy
1: idea! In hindsight, it's like QuickTime's not even a thing anymore. It's it's a service. It's part of it's a framework now more than anything. It's like now it's like hey, we're going to have a conference about AV player and iOS. You're like, cool two dudes are going to show up and that's going to be it but you know at the time it was a push it's, it's funny how things change and evolve and it's it's fun to like you guys do on the show uh, dig back into that and and kind of pull out what's what's important cuz very rarely does something come along that you know at the time is important like i think the macbook is one of those things and my wife owns one it's her it's her only computer and i will keep it when it rotates out of you know in a couple of years um as a machine, you can look at today and say this. This machine is going to be important because it's it's doing some interesting things, and it's it's obviously uh, Apple changing some of the parameters and what it views as important. You know, Apple I think really has all these levers of things that you know, it pulls these levers to different positions for the different products. You have some that power is the most important thing, and, and everything else is less important. And then you have uh, this with this MacBook portability is even more important than the typing experience, uh, in my opinion. And that's really that's a really interesting change. It's really Apple's been serious about portables before, but this is like that taken to the extreme. And are all laptops going to look like MacBooks one day? I kind of doubt it, but a bunch of them might. And I think that's it's fun when that comes along when you're paying attention and when you can grab onto it.
0: Yeah, I wonder if people collect these same sort of things today if they're available on the market. If anyone knows if these kinds of things are out there, it might be dangerous to actually point us to them. But um, like you said, that MacBook design is iconic. And I know that I've seen, like you said, like the hero photos of it on the, on the Apple website, and they look great. And I'm sure they would look great in large format as well. One of the most ridiculous things I have in my collection that I don't know. I'm going to my parents at Thanksgiving. I should probably go in the closet and dig this out and make a final decision on it. Is I have a uh, a bus shelter poster. So these are translucent six by four plastic posters of of the uh, of the iBook G3 in tangerine. Very cool. And it says iMac to go, and it's just absolutely ginormous. <laughs> um, and I think I paid like eighty dollars for it on eBay in two thousand or
1: something. Yeah. That'd be super cool if people walk into your house and it's like the first thing they see.
0: Yeah, it's a a conversation piece. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, so we've talked about all of uh, the work that you do and chronicling these things, trying to archive them um, and promoting this type of Apple history. And you said, you know, you don't do it for the page views. Uh, It's it's a passion project for you. But because we're in this same space, what do you see as the... Market or usefulness of going back into this Apple history, both the sort of insider history, like the history of the company and things that were going on, the decisions that were being made there, and the outsider perspective, like we have as consumers and fans. It's really interesting.
1: I'm going to preface this by saying very clearly that, like, I really like Tim Cook and like almost everything he has done. Semicolon <laughs> Apple is is in a transition uh, both with leadership and with sort of what, how the company views itself. And and, and I have this, this little pet theory that Apple more so than any other company I can think of molds itself to the personality of its CEO. And so you look at when jobs was there in the beginning, Apple was this rebellious driving around the windows down, long hair, smoking a cigarette, Apple and, and then the business guys took it over. You had Scully
0: and uh, Melio.
1: Yeah, yeah, all those guys. I have all their books. I've never read any of them because it's going to be sad. Um, the suits came in and run it, and Apple takes on that personality. Boring. Uh, Even its machines feel like there's just red tape surrounding the machines. Like, what format do I buy? I don't know. If like a lot of form and will tell you. Like,
0: yeah in the in those dark days, it was it was really bad. There was an old uh, like jokey Apple rumors site called As the Apple Turns. Yeah. yeah. And um, their entire website was formated, formatted like classic OS Windows. Um, and every quarter when Apple did the earnings call, they would have a contest, um, guess the Apple earnings. And in those really bad days, like the Gil Emilio CEO days, uh, they just hard-coded the minus sign in front of the field that you oh, would fill no. in. <laughs> <laughs> That's
1: sad. Uh, I think jobs comes back. And Apple takes on his identity again of rebellious, but kind of cooled down a little bit, and his interest in music and art. You know, Apple follows those things. And now, you know, we're couple, several years in, a, in the Tim Cook era, and Apple is already taking on his identity of being, which I love, a force for like change in the world, like politically and all this stuff. You know, Apple's very powerful, and it was always sort of just a silent giant. And now, uh, Apple as an entity cares about what Tim Cook cares about. And I think that's, I think that's great. I'm hundred percent behind that, but there is a, um, there's a danger in that a little bit of, you know, Apple's had this recipe for a long time and uh, is that going to shift? And so I, I don't, I don't know if it, if it will drastically, but you look at things like it's popular to complain about 16 gig iPhones and that new 21 inch iMac you just bought, uh, shifted <laughs> the 5,400 or a laptop drive, which is just Insane to me.
0: Well, and I, I went for the two terabyte fusion because the one terabyte fusion only has 24 gigs of flash in it.
1: Oh, <laughs> you're killing me. Um, and so they have this identity CEO theory. Um, and I think it's important to to know where Apple has been and the mistakes Apple has made and the successes that Apple has had. Uh, all that context when viewing Apple now. And so it's easy. I've done it on podcast you complain about the 16 gig iPhone well like you also have to remember like that is like the theory is that, well Tim Cook is a numbers guy and that works out on a spreadsheet so they're going to do it that way and then maybe Apple has lost the ability to feel like that gut check that Steve Jobs was so good at maybe Apple's lost that and maybe that's bad and I think there's some, maybe some truth to that but I think also you have to temper it with well you bought an iBook G4 in 2002 it came with about a third of the amount of RAM that OS X really needed to like run well um, and you know, having that historical reference point of, you know, Apple has always kind of cut corners on, on lower end products and it was always kind of expected like, Hey, you're going to need to upgrade the RAM in that, or that hard drive is going to be fine for a couple of years, but in a couple of years you might need to get a bigger one or whatever the case may be. And so you can, you can balance that. And I, I think I I try to be very mindful of that and, and forming opinions about current day Apple and future Apple that, um, it is the same company that, that was there in the '90s, and they were churning out churning out new performer every week. It, some of the same people are there for crying out loud, uh, and it's a continuum, right? Like it's not the day that Tim Cook took over; they didn't Apple didn't change into Tim's Apple. It was still, it was still, it still is a lot of Steve Jobs Apple, and and there's a gradient there, and and I don't know where we are on that. Like I don't know how far over the slider is yet, but uh, if you don't have like reference points, it's it's impossible to measure that. And so it's something that I think a lot about of. Um, you know, these mistakes that Apple made in the past, are there signs that, that we're heading there again, or are there signs that we're going to make different mistakes? And you know, that doesn't mean that I can tell tell the future. If I could, I'd make a lot more as a podcaster. But uh, it's something to think about. Something that I try to filter my opinions through that lens uh, when when I can.
0: No, that's absolutely a great way to put it, and something we try to keep in mind is that we love the, just the pure nostalgia of looking back at these things and r- remember what it was like when, but being able to take both that very detailed view of, oh, hey, I'm going to deep dive on what the Mac 2 FX was like um, versus where that sits in the the history of computing, not just the history of Apple and its community is, is definitely important for context.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And it's, you know, it, if you can do that successfully, you can have a, a little bit of a unique voice into things where, um, I mean, the joke is on am connected that I'm the old guy and that's true,
0: but you're the youngest one on this podcast. So don't worry. <laughs> uh,
1: yeah. And you guys are spiritually old too. That's really what Federico and Mike mean. They're spiritually old. Um, it, again, it's like having that, that, that lens to look through, you know, just like anything else, right? Like, I mean, it's not unique to Apple, right? Like if you, speak about politics or um issues of the day like it's important to know that like well this topic was a topic in the 70s and this is what we decided as a society and i mean all of that like happens out in the non-apple world too um and so i think it's important kind of no matter what your interest is uh to kind of know how it got there and where it comes from and um and again you can draw that line maybe to, to where it's headed
0: Yeah, this may be a whole can of worms, but (laughs) taking it from that very sort of sobering uh, perspective of where are we, where are we headed? How do you feel about the fact that the same way that the iPhone has become just part of mass consciousness and pop culture, uh, recent more pop culture takes on looking at Apple history, um, notably with a few... Uh, movies that are basically dramatizing the history of apple
1: you know it, it's interesting um i haven't seen the new jobs movie i've seen all the others and there's always that struggle right of like i know how it went down and then i go read this book and read this movie and it's it's portrayed poorly or incorrectly and, and understand like if you're making a movie or tv show you got to make it or a book, you got to make it where people don't want to walk out or fall asleep. And a lot of computer history is relatively boring, but, um, <laughs> uh, so I don't, I don't like, like this Aaron Sorkin movie, if it's drastically different, which I've heard it is like, I don't, I don't fault Aaron Sorkin for that because he's got to make a movie that people want to go see where the stress comes for me is like, does that story become canon and the real story get lost to time? And, um, uh, I think there is some of that, especially around like Steve Jobs legacy of everybody's like, yeah, he was a jerk. And it's like, well, yeah, he could be, but he was also like, could be every I many people, you know, who I've talked to who knew him and, and you read these stories, he could be, especially in his later years, deeply compassionate with people and just deeply connect with somebody who was having issues with family or at home or he, you see a little bit of it now, even in our circles where like, I think a lot of people view Steve jobs as like how he was in the eighties because we know a lot about that Steve jobs. And we don't know until recent books about Steve jobs at Pixar and at Apple in his later years. And so there, I think even within our community, there's a shift towards one direction. And the reality is he was an incredibly complex human being, just like every other human being on the planet. And, uh, it, some of those details and get lost and that's, that's worrisome, but it's, it's something too that like, I don't know what you can do about it. I mean, that that happens to every historical figure. You know, we know, like what do you know about Abraham Lincoln? Well, he was tall and he had a beard and he grew up in like a lock cabin and he he did a bunch of great stuff as president. And then he had a really unfortunate end. <laughs> like that's really broad. Like, and a lot of like personality and things for people in history get lost of time. And that's just kind of the way it is, unfortunately.
2: Just very briefly, it's not only that people and readers and consumers of the story might get a different version based on these things. But it almost appears that like companies might learn from it in the wrong way. Like Apple's a a ripoff target in product design and software design. But uh, like personally, I'm starting to wonder if, if Apple, the corporate identity with history of how things were run. And I think you make a good point about uh, being a reflection of its CEO and its leadership is also a target for emulation. And the one I can think of is a uh, Jack Dorsey who at least it's being written about, like he's trying to model himself after Steve jobs, both in his like uh, his aesthetic sense and how he makes that a priority. But also now he's coming back to maybe quote, save the company he founded after being ousted in in a contentious way. Uh, do you have any sense about that too?
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah that's a really good uh a really good example I mean, and there's been a lot of talk around Jack coming back to Twitter and uh, there's a big thing on Recode about like, he's a changed man it's like well, he's only been gone like three years like, <laughs> like that's really compressed like um anyways I, I do think people look at Steve Jobs, you know the, the sort of in like the startup world, which like relay is kind of him, but not really like there's this idea of like well. Um, I'm going to have like one really passionate person behind my product and like the product is going to win. And like, I know what's best for the product. And and there are people with startups who are like that, but then a lot of startups, a lot of software companies who have leaders like that just blow up because their vision isn't correct. And the reality is that Steve jobs was that way, but Steve jobs also listened to the people around him. So when Phil Schiller and Eddie Q and people come to him and say, look, you got to put iTunes on windows like if you want the iPod to be successful, if you want the store to be successful we've got to be got to be on windows and basically jobs like says no says no says no, and throws his hand up says "Do what you want turns out like Steve Jobs knew when to let it go and when to change his mind i mean how i mean it's it's going on with the stupid iPad pro right now of, like if you see a status they blew it well in context in like two thousand and seven you did because it was a resistive screen you had like smashed layers together and and what they're doing now is totally different um And I I guarantee you that if the iPad pro what came up in development uh, now that like, I think that Steve jobs would have been a fan of it because of the creativity and the art that people could do with it. And so I think a lesson people take away is like, I'm going to be, I'm going to be strong fisted and iron willed. Like the reality is some of the best products in the world are come from teams and come from people who disagree and they argue and they go back and forth. And what that comes out out of that process is really good. And there are maybe Jack Dorsey's one of these people that who can do that, but I think most people can't. I know I can't, and so I depend on my co-founder. I know Mike I know Mike can't, and so he depends on me. And together, the two of us, we can do it. And you know, not everybody walking around running a company has that Steve Jobs touch. But I'm afraid a lot of people think they do. And when you run like I don't know if you guys have ever I've run into that and it's it it's very off putting because it's like you might be right and you might even be right a lot of the time, but like you got to surround yourself with smart people or, or you're just, it's just not going to be a, not going to be a good thing.
0: Agreed. Yeah. Well, I think it, your your point is totally valid that we should always be considering this context. And, you know, we want to thank you again for helping provide some of that context by, by going back and, and doing these things. Um, so I think that, brings us to the end of this show. So, Steven, we know that there are many places we've mentioned them already that we can find you online, but where would you like to direct listeners to uh find your work and get in touch with you?
1: Yeah, so I write a uh, website uh, 512pixels.net. Uh bonus points if you know why it's called that. We'll just leave it a secret. Um it's really easy and it's on the about page, so maybe not a great <laughs> challenge. Uh, and so you can find all the history stuff there. Uh, I also found on a couple podcasts on relay, uh, connected with Mike Hurley and Federico Givettici. We talk about Apple and then a new one called Lift Off with Jason Snell. We talk about space. <laughs> um, I've, so I've, I've had the secret life of being like a NASA history buff too. And now I have a place to, uh, share that. Although it is much harder to collect space shuttles than Mac. So, so, you know, so far. And then, and then definitely, I'm on Twitter like everyone else. Uh, ISMH over there, and uh, yeah, so definitely, like if you're interested in this stuff, or like, uh, like my favorite emails are someone like, well, you talked about this machine, but you got this detail wrong. Like, I want to hear it because I want to have my records correct. And um, having that dialogue with people who are interested in this is always fun. So definitely reach out and say hey, and uh, let's talk about stuff. So
0: absolutely, and we welcome that feedback, and we'll uh, we'll address it on the show, and we'll pass it along to you as well. Stephen. So if you do want to get in touch with us, if you've been yelling, uh, or you yelled at the podcast 45 <laughs> minutes ago and you've been waiting for your opportunity, uh, you can get in touch with us. You can go to our website, simplebeep.com, And we've got a contact form there, or you can find us. The show Twitter is simple underscore beep. You can also find us individually on Twitter. I'm at eCormany, E-C-O-R-M-A-N-Y.
2: And I'm at b s u t o.
0: And thanks again to Stephen for joining us and because I have to do this. Let's uh, have everyone say goodbye. Adios. (laughs) Excellent.
1: (laughs) Thanks again. Yeah, thanks, Stephen. You bet. No, I appreciate it. It was a lot of fun.